Hey everyone, it sounds like a movement, a show about weirdos, disruptors, pioneers, and make-believers who are changing everything. I'm your host, CJ Cassiata. My guest on this episode is my good friend, Mike Foster. He's the author of this book, People of the Second Chance, a guide to bringing life-saving love to the world. He's also the founder of an organization by the same name. I've learned so much from Mike over the years about friendship, about business, about family. I'm so glad you get to hear his wisdom right now on the show. So let's get to it. The tension is the point. It is not to be denied. It's to be sought out. It's the narrative that lets us know we're on to something. When you really can come from a place of vulnerability, when you can come from a place of, of friendship and kinship and understanding, I really think our messages come across at a different level. And people are then more responsive and open to hearing what we have to say. And they feel immediately connected to this thing that we hope will get out into the world. But if you really train your voice, you know, if you really pay attention to the particular, that's that's where your power is. Art is to remain in that tension yeah. and to tell the truth. So you've got this, this thing that I'm sure sounded like a crazy idea to a lot of people before you started it, but now that you've got your own book out, now that it's this thriving nonprofit, people have the second chance. It's this really awesome thing. I will let you explain it. But I wanna, I wanna start kind of like right before this all happened. People of the Second Chance became an idea. You were you were running, you actually founded this really awesome design and creative agency. And then one day you're like, you know, I I want to walk away from all this success and start this thing called People of the Second Chance. Explain what was running through your mind <laughs> that day. Maybe it was not a, a, a split-second decision. I'm sure it wasn't. I'm sure uh, it took a while. But explain what was going through your mind back then. Yeah, I think what was going through my mind was complete and utter fear. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I was I was working at a really great company um, that I had co-founded with a, a great friend of mine, and I had tons of clients, and it was great, and I loved it. Uh, but I knew like there was this gnawing in my my soul that just said, you know, I don't think I could do this for another 10, 20 years, even though it was wonderful, like. Had healthcare and and a great salary and tons of freedom and love the team, but I just knew that there was something kind of within me that said, um, you know, you got to make a decision. And the decision for me was I was doing this little nonprofit thing called People of Second Chance, and you know, it was taking up maybe 10, 15, 20 percent of my time, and uh, had no revenue, had no sort of security blanket in terms of the finances and just said, you know what, I, I need, I, this is worthy of my full attention or I need to have somebody else run with this and just take it. And then I'm going to just focus on, on the, the design firm. And so I made the decision through a lot of different processing and a lot of different kind of looking at my own strengths and, and, and had things in my own life and opportunities and my own story. I said, let's jump, let's, let's do this. It's crazy. Um, by the way, my wife should get a huge trophy for just like being willing to <laughs> to go along this journey with me. But I think all of us at some level have have these moments, these 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 turning points in our lives where it's like we can we can continue 
in business as usual, in business as usual, whether it's our vocational or just the personal or family or within a relationship, we can do business as usual, or we can step out of our, our comfort zone or the thing that we love or thing, even the thing that we know best and most comfortable with into something new. And sometimes that pays off like amazingly. And honestly, I'm so grateful that that decision, though it was a hard decision and a lot of risk and, you know, literally the first couple years was like grinding it out to, to make everything, you know, fit and work and the way I wanted it to. It's like building, you're building something, right? Um, yeah. But it was the best decision I've ever made in my life and I feel so incredibly fulfilled right now. I feel like, uh, you know, like I can't imagine doing design work right now and, and, <laughs> and doing that because I feel so satisfied and fulfilled by the work of people with second chance. Well, I mean, let's go back even further to like who you are. Why, when you were running, you know, this agency, which is a pretty, that's a pretty big task. Like I, I imagine there's not a whole lot of free time during the day. Why did you start something that didn't have a revenue stream attached to it in the first place? Like why even give 10, 15, 20% of your time to this people of the second chance idea. Yeah, well, I, I think for me, um, my whole, like if you have a, if they say, you know, we have life messages or thing, themes of our life that are things that are just really important to us. And I think for me, the past, if my life message is, my life message is not design, my life message is grace, my life message is second chance. It's being for people and wanting to see them thrive and flourish in their life. And I, I did a lot of that work, honestly, with the design company. You know, I, I would spend a lot of time with clients on the personal level and, and friendship level and really just helping them work through all kinds of um, different issues, struggles in their own life. And um, honestly, not to, not to be braggadocious about this, but I'm, I'm really good <laughs> at that. And I, I feel like I was sort of born to do that. And, and so to me, it was just like, I want to do more of that. I want to operate in my gifting. I want to be, um, I want to help people in, in every possible way that I can be free. And so I just, I just was compelled to go all in and say, let's try this. And if it failed, that's okay because I was doing a, a, a thing called people of the second chance and failures allowed. <laughs> <laughs> that's actually a brilliant strategy. Just make something about, about second chances and failure. So that if you do fail. That's right. It won't be everybody be like, oh, okay, that sounds great. Yeah, it's just yeah. all part of the brand, right? <laughs> oh, man, that's great. So I've learned a lot from you, but what I haven't learned until recently is how big of a Muppets fan you are, mm. like me. And I feel like that just took our friendship to an entirely new level because we could geek out about more stuff. But what I love about the fact that you are a Muppets fan is you found a way to leak this Muppet fandom into this awesome book. It's called People of the Second Chance, by the way. You talk about green coats. Can you kind of give us a little synopsis of what the message behind green coats is? Yeah, so so for me, I, I've, I've always... Um, there's been two, two people, and I don't know if you're a fan of the second person, but it's it's Jim Henson and Fred Rogers have always been... I love been, Fred Rogers. ...and just these inspirational models for me, and... The way they lived, the way they treated people, what they created. I've always sensed like just, uh, I want to be more like that. I want to be more like Jim. I want to be more like Fred. Uh, one of the things I write about in the book is just the 
the origination of the very first Kermit the Frog. And, and the story goes that uh, Elizabeth, Jim's mom, was taking, was getting rid of this old, green, yucky, mothballed, stinky coat, you know, fuzzy green coat, that Jim <laughs> stopped her, grabbed the coat, and took it in his workshop and cut out this little frog body and then cut a ping, bong, ping pong ball in half and made two eyes. And this was the very first Kermit the Frog. And what I love about that story and why that, that story is so important to me and why it fits in the book is because I think there's this sense of we look at our failures, we look at the things that maybe are stinky or, or maybe we think should be thrown away or the, part, the chapters of our life that maybe society says like, yeah, get rid of that. We don't want to see that anymore or we don't want that to be part of who you are. And, and so often we discard that and we throw it away instead of allowing um, kind of a new vision and a new look at what that could become. And I, I, one of the things I, I believe, and I talk about this in the book, is that our brokenness, our failures, our addictions, our moments that we feel shame and embarrassment about, we can have those moments actually become our unfair advantage in the world, that they, those things make us fully human and, and fully who we are. And yet so often we, we bury those things, we hide those things, we, we get rid of those things because we think they're, they're a liability versus an asset. Mm. That's so interesting because we live in a, in a world that celebrates things like, you know, well, there's, there's Strength Finder and there's nothing wrong with Strength Finder, but you, you tend to sort of get a job or move up the ladder in life because of, of the things that you're really good at. And what you're saying is, you know, the stuff that you may not really be proud of, the things in your life that are, are things that you, you'd rather kind of stuff and hide away might be the things that give you an unfair advantage. Have you ever wondered like, okay, I have this message kind of weird i think it could help a lot of people but what if people don't <laughs> really want to talk about their their weaknesses in a world that kind of celebrates strengths yeah well i think that's 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 probably one of the biggest barriers that i'm trying to overcome with people is because we live in a society where the shame machine the rejection machine the label machine is fully operational and fully functional and so that leaves us in a state of fear because at the end of the day like Every human being, I think Brene Brown talks about this in her research, is that all we want is to be loved and to belong. And so we look at our, our failures, we look at our mistakes, we look at those moments that we wish we could undo. And if we believe that if people knew that about us, we would not receive love and we would not be accepted. And so... I, I want to, and that's a reality because oftentimes we do share some of the more vulnerable things of our past or our story and people freak out or they judge us or they label us. And so there's, there's like a personal thing that I'm trying to do in terms of people's lives of them getting more comfortable with their brokenness. But then there's also a societal thing to saying we need to stop um, marginalizing people because of their failures, because of their addictions, because of... Um, things that have gone wrong in their life because that is the human experience. Mm. That is part of what makes us who we are. Um, and the, the idea of perfectionism, the idea of high performance, I mean, those things sound interesting. And listen, I worked at a design firm where like we wanted perfection. 
We really yeah. did. And that's how we made money. And I get that. But I also know that that is not um, a framework that I can adopt into my personal life. Um, that's not the way I want to raise my kids. That's not the way I want to conduct my marriage. I want to have sort of my darkness and my light come together. Uh, I want my my ruinness and my holiness all to sort of coexist. And I think that's a full human experience. And I believe that's how we truly thrive. That's really good. Yeah, I was being kind of facetious that we're a culture that really celebrates strengths and the strengths finder. And, and I, I, we're also sort of seeing this shift culturally that's like, you know what, I'm I'm done trying to win that race. That I'm done trying to spin on that hamster wheel. Mm-hmm. Like you're you're seeing books that Brené Brown writes become that, you know New York Times bestsellers. Like you're you're seeing this sort of cultural resonance with that theme. And you mentioned you know working for a design firm. You know we had James Victoria, who is a, a MoMA artist designer. You know has been on the cover of Entrepreneur, all of that stuff. And he's got a phrase. Uh, called feck perfection. <laughs> yes, I and, love that. Uh, yeah, and and he's even you know you look at that guy and you go wow that guy is the pinnacle of what it means to be an artist to be a commercial designer and this guy's even saying hey look the more you strive for perfection the more you're gonna you're gonna miss the mark on what truly matters and so I think what I love about you is you know, and I've always loved this about you, is you're, you're always a little early to the game culturally. You're always thinking about things a couple of years earlier than most people do. And I'm sure that's, that's frustrating sometimes, but eventually, you know, you stick around long enough and you're like, man, dude, Mike Foster was right. He was right the whole time. And I, what's, <laughs> what's really cool about this book is I feel like it's a, it's a, it's a manifesto of, of all those thoughts and, and it's cool that people are really resonating with it. Tell me about, because you mentioned this, uh, what I also love about this book too, and I, it, what's, what's fun about being your friend for a couple of years now is like, this book reads very like front to back really well as like one whole continuous thought. But knowing you, this is really a collection of, of thoughts and insights you've, you've gathered over the years. And so I'd love for you to tell the story of, of the 51%. And I, I feel like behind that, that analogy there's just there's just such truth that we all need to understand and hear about ourselves can you talk yeah. about 51 percent? yeah so for me what's what's been interesting i think there's probably a lot of people listening right now who dream of being an author or want to write something or want to create something i think for me this is my very first what i call my first big boy book you know where <laughs> Um, you know, major publisher. It's going to be on the shelves of Barnes and Noble. I've co-written some things. I've created a lot of workbooks and curriculum and, and other content. But but this is like my very first book, and I think it's it has been one of those. When I wrote the book, I just I had to really think about what I believed and what I believed about the world, what I believed about myself, what I believed about grace. And so it is a collection. One of the, one of the things I talked about and shared about was this this moment when I was at this this uh, leaders gathering with some really, honestly, some really important people. I'm kind of like, what am I doing here? Because uh, these people were like some movers and shakers. And they were talking about, um, we're all sitting at this breakfast table, and they were all talking about the um, this gift basket that they had gotten from kind of the guy who was convening all of us together. And um, 
you know, it had coffee and some like all these really cool books and these goodies. And it was sort of this Christmas thing. And it was awesome. And everybody's like going on and on about it. And they're sort of looking at me like, hey, Mike, you know, you, you got the basket, right? You got this goodie box. And I'm kind of like, uh, no, I didn't get it. I, in fact, I don't know what you guys are talking about. And the guy who had convened uh, the group and had sent out the, the gifts said, no, Mike, I know I sent it to you. I know you, you got it. Um, and so he got out his, his laptop and his Excel spreadsheet and he goes, I sent it to my top 50 people. He goes, I sent it to like I, everybody who's like my top in it. It's kind of weird that he ranks people, right? Yeah, yeah I was going to say, that's a weird uh, That's a, weir- that's a weird thing, place. but he like, he prioritized, I guess, you know, some of the, the different industries and the different sort of um, importance of influence and what, whatever. <laughs> so he pulls oh, out the spreadsheet and he starts going down the spreadsheet. And he's like, I know you got it. I gave it, sent it to my top 50 people. And as we're scrolling down, and everybody's now kind of engaged in looking at the spreadsheet. And as you scroll down, you see the name Mike Foster. And I was number 51. <laughs> I didn't make the cut. Oh, I, man. I just, and sort of like, you know, that it, there was an awkward, there was a, a lot of awkwardness in that moment. It's like, oh my gosh, this is really happening. Like, I just... <laughs> Everybody's now looking at me. Everybody's looking at this guy with a spreadsheet, and we're like, "Oh wow!" This, this is why you don't make spreadsheets ranking people. <laughs> exactly. And so, one of the things that I, you know, the reason I share that is because I think all of us have been in a place, either in our career, maybe even in school, like where where we just didn't make the cut. Like we we didn't get picked for the kickball team. There, there's been those moments where it's like everybody knows that you're not enough. Everybody knows you're the 51. Every, and, and there's sort of like, there's the reality and the weight of that. And so like with the book, what I'm, what I'm trying to do is, is say, listen, um, there's all kinds of numbering. There's all kinds of labeling. There's all kinds of uh, winners and losers that our society wants to put forward and kind of categorize uh, in all kinds of different ways. But that I don't live that way. You don't have to live that way because you can just look at your life and say, I matter. What I do matters. I, I have value and worth and significance. And whether I'm 51 or number one, it, it, those things are, are irrelevant. And yet we do, the, the, again, the battle is, CJ, that we live in a society that, man, we're always checking our, the number of Twitter followers. We're always you know, looking at our ranking. We're always looking at some type of metric to uh, d- describe to us our own value. And often these metrics are, are incredibly distorted, incredibly dysfunctional. Some of them are flat out evil. And so we, we need to have like a new conversation, a new dialogue, and a new way to look at value, not only in our own lives, but even in society. Man, my, my mind wants to ask about 10 different questions based on that story, but I'll start with, just sort of reassuring this concept. Like I remember Seth Godin, we had him on a while ago and he talks about first violin and second violin. And when I was a kid, you know, I used to play violin and I remember that was like, you know, in an orchestra, you go, wow, first violin comes out last and he bows and everybody loves that violinist. And and for some reason we've, we've relegated second violin to, oh, okay, that's not as important as the first violin. Where in, in reality, second violin in a symphony, 
doesn't have a less important role. They just have an, another role. Like, and, and you can't yeah. really have the first violin without the second violin because they complement each other and all this stuff. And so Seth basically just debunks what you're saying or debunks and the, you know that that concept of like we need to rank people we need to rank skills it's like it, no there's just this collection of humanity that ends up together creating something really really beautiful and so yes one of the questions that i i have for you based on on this story is like and maybe this is just kind of my cynicism coming out but i feel like we've got guys who are beginning to say this and girls who are beginning to say this and, and it's not enough and there aren't, you know, we could replicate Brené Brown and we could replicate Mike and we could replicate Seth Godin, you know, a hundred times and I think, don't think it would still be enough. But like, what's it gonna, what's it gonna take and what should people do listening to this podcast right now who is a writer, who who is a designer, who is a creator to go, you know what, it actually doesn't matter how many people will follow me, what I am ranked, when you can listen to this podcast, but in reality, every billboard, every conversation you have, you know, the opposite, the opposite message is true. Like the opposite message, or at least the opposite message seems true. Like it seems like you just walk in to any crowd and they're going to ask you, what do you do? How do you produce value? How many mm-hmm. Twitter followers do you have? Like practically on a ground level, how do we start walking this out, especially as makers and as creators? Yeah, that's such a great question, and it is challenging because, as you said, like there's so many things that that messaging and 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 even our own experiences of rejection and where we have been labeled that says like, well, how am I supposed to stop that? I've tried tried to be honest. I've tried to be vulnerable. I've tried to divorce myself from the metrics of our society, and so I think one of the things that uh, number one, I'd say, yes, there are voices out there that are that are part of a vulnerability vulnerability movement and this idea of you know trying to tear down some of these forces of darkness that are happening around <laughs> shame and judgment. Um, and we need more voices, honestly, CJ. Um, one of the stories I share in the uh, the book is uh, about these frogs that um, they all. They all sort of ribbit and make their frog croaking together. Frogs seem to be like a pretty big metaphor. They, I, I love my frogs. <laughs> I, I got to be honest. I love my frogs. But this is this. These are real frogs, not okay. not uh, frogs that play a banjo <laughs> and sing Rainbow Connection. But these are real frogs. And what they do is they they croak and they they make different noises to protect each other from the from the eagles or different threats that would birds that would come down and poach them. And so, like, to me, it's not enough for just a couple of frogs to be croaking this message of second chance and, and grace. It's like, the more we need more people. And the way we have more people join that chorus of the frogs is for them, for, for all of us, to begin to talk about our weaknesses, our vulnerabilities, even in, in the smallest of contexts, with, with, some, with a friend at Starbucks, with somebody that we work with. Maybe just even within our family, what we talk around the, about in the dinner table. Maybe you're a, a pastor or a minister. Like, what do you talk about with your congregation? What do you like? Begin to share the struggle because I think, honestly, most of us are tired of hearing the success stories. And number two, we actually don't believe them. Like, yeah, they're not. We know deep inside, they're really not exactly true or accurate. 
And so, yeah. but our, our stories of weakness have such an honesty to them and have such a, um, uh, like people lean in when you start sharing your struggles. They really do. And I know it's, a, it's scary to like get those first words out, but we actually, it's a gift that we can give to each other when we can be completely um, vulnerable and honest and take a risk with who we are. And that looks different for all different people. And it, Sometimes it's a really big secret that we've been holding for a long time. Sometimes it's just a, a, a struggle like, hey, I'm, I'm, I've been losing my patience with my kids, my teenage kids, and, and I yelled at my, my son this week. And like just being like having those more real moments with each other is how we begin to change culture, how we begin to change the conversation. And um, what, I, what, I love, um, what I love is that we are um, – I think be at the very tip of the spear of the shift. That's good. That's good. And what I love about you is that, you know, even kind of going back to that design firm, it was called plain Joe. Like here, yes. you, you are, you're kind of the Bruce Springsteen of, I don't know what you would call it. Pop psychology. Um, I like that. Uh, yeah. Right. I mean, you're, you're kind of the working man's guy in all of this. Like you bring these very, heady kind of hard to to wrap your mind around concepts down to average people like me and it's like oh i get it i get it i I understand what shame is i understand how to deal with it so no pressure but can you (laughs) can you can you explain what shame is to sort of the the you know an average person like me and a couple of tools on how to how to manage it because i know that that's a big chunk of what this book is about yeah so, so often we hear that word shame and it feels like a really dark, heavy, weird psych, psycho, psychology type word. So to me, I look at shame and the way I would describe shame is just this virus that's operating in our operating system, our programming, that is constantly saying you are not enough. Mm. Um, and so, and that has all kinds of different extensions to it but there's this sense of um, I have to hustle for my worth I have to prove myself I have to perform I have to do something in order for me to feel loved and to belong and that's that's a problem and that the, the problem with shame is actually it discolors everything in our life like it's how you see your career how you see your relationships how you see yourself how you see your spouse if shame if if shame is in the operating system, we got a problem. And so, what I and this is really what the book addresses in, in in trying to take these complex things and trying to move them into some simple next steps and really just identifying some of the things that uh, to identify the virus and how it's playing out in our own lives. Because one of the things I do also know is with shame is when you feel like you're not enough, when you feel that your life you have to do something for your worth or for love, then that leads us into all kinds of dysfunction, all kinds of addiction, all types of despair and depression. And so to me, it's like, I want to tackle that, that shame engine because if I can tackle that shame engine, the other things around me begin to heal and become whole. And so one of the things I, 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 teach people and talk to people about and maybe like a, a very simple tip in terms of like if we're struggling with a sense of worth and value and performance and perfectionism, one of the most basic things we can do is 
begin to practice our own self-care. And what I mean by that is um, where we stop performing and we actually start taking care of ourselves. We actually do things that are replenishing to us. For example, like instead of, um, like I forget the, 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 the statistics, but, but most people in America who are in type, any type of career or vocational uh, experience right now don't take their full vacation. Hmm. Or if they do, it's like a working vacation, right? They, yeah. they do some emails in the morning, do some emails at night, but they're never really truly unplugged. They never truly replenish. Um, again, that's, that's, there, there's maybe some basic uh, delegation things happening there, but I think there's a lot of shame things happening there. Like, no, if I stopped just, if I just sat like a bump on a log on a beach and ate nachos all day, all of a sudden my value comes into question. I'm not producing mm. something. And so um, self-care to me is a very easy, uh, basic step. And whether it's vacation, whether it's finding 30 minutes during the day to just do something that's replenishing for you, maybe it's meditation. Maybe For me, it's like I love to sit on my patio. And I'm a high-functioning introvert, so I like to be quiet. I, I, disconnect, I turn the phone off. I listen to um, jazz music and my little fountains that are on my patio. And I like, I'm just literally quiet and I'm with my heart. I'm with my soul. I'm with my thoughts. So I do that. I try to do that almost on a daily. That's a daily practice. A uh, weekly practice, I like to grab like my favorite book and a Starbucks drink and sit on this leather couch in my favorite Starbucks for about an hour and a half and just read, not work reading, just read. That's replenishing. I love to sail. I love uh, Hawaii. Like doing things that actually fill you up and replenish you is to me like, number one, a very wonderful, exciting thing to do if we actually do it. And most people totally neglect themselves totally right. uh, do no type of replenishment because again how can you replenish when your your whole framework is based on performance and doing something for your career or doing something for somebody else or overgiving or over responsibility all that's just like part of the dysfunction of shame and so I, I really encourage people and teach people how to do these replenishing practices and I think that's a really good first start first step well yeah and and, and rhythm is really tough it's like if we do vacation, it's like, okay, let's work ourselves to death and, you know, finally take a break. And maybe that happens once a year where that's just not sustainable, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think that if you even just look at the cycles of how the sun comes out and then it goes down and the moon comes out, it's like, we're kind of built for daily rhythm, weekly rhythm, monthly rhythm, yearly rhythm. Like those, we gotta, we gotta do those things. Um, that's so good. You can't hear that enough. And again, you can, you can really, do a deep dive into people who are thinking this way. I mean, I get emails every morning from a guy named Father Richard Rohr. He's a Catholic priest, and he's rocking my world when it comes to meditative being and listening and all that kind of stuff. So, And it sounds a lot like what you do on your patio listening to some jazz music. So it sounds like you're on the, uh, <laughs> it sounds like you're on the right path. Well, the reason I do it is because the other path was completely unsustainable. Yeah. And, and it's sort of like, we, we believe the lie that we can continue to produce, to output, that we somehow are limitless beings who have no limits or can just do it. We can just keep driving, 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 performing, perfecting, and that we can continue on for the rest of our lives this way. And what 
and honestly, a lot of my work, CJ, is where I'm scraping people off of the ground after that belief has run them into a brick wall and yeah. they've lost everything instead of just yeah. daily practices for replenishment and self-care and getting a much clearer picture of who we are and the value that we create. That's great. That's great. I want to sort of wrap up with, with this because we talked a lot about how we deal with shame, but I know that shame doesn't happen in a vacuum. Like I am, it, it scares me to death, honestly, to, to now have a kid and be like, I hope I don't, and I know I'm going to, I'm just started a, a savings fund for her psychology bills uh, <laughs> right now. But it's like, I know I'm going to do something that produces shame in you. And so I, I feel the other part of this book is, is talking about how we can be a life giver, how we can, can react and interact with people who do have shame because I think we get it wrong most of the time, which again, it's cyclical because that produces shame and it's like this, you know, this shame battle. So can you give us a couple of tips sort of as we, as we wrap up for us who are, are interacting all day long with, with people who are just carrying stuff and when we could say dumb stuff as human beings, Mm. how do we, how do we be life bringers? How do we be people of the second chance to people who need a second chance? Yeah, that's such a great question. And, and um, you know, I teach a, a two-day workshop in San Diego here where I live, uh, where I teach people how, actually how to begin to dismantle some of the shame and that people feel and actually how to be a good coach and counselor to people who are hurting, whether they're struggling with, you know, addiction or depression or shame or whatever sort of the struggle might be. But one of the things that uh, a lot of us, we overcomplexify this stuff sometimes and we, we make it too complicated. Like, well, I don't know what to do or I don't know what to say or I don't know how to fix this or I, and this person or like uh, I've, never, you know, I've never been in this situation before with this particular problem that this person's facing. And so one of the things, maybe the first starting point for almost every issue of brokenness is radical acceptance. And what I mean mm. by that is like for us to sit in a place with somebody with, with this sense of radical non-judgment, just knowing that nothing that that person can do or say right now would cause me to um, reject them, to like think of them less of a, of a human, to like try to strip away their dignity or their value, like, and, and really come at people. And that's really hard to do, by the way, CJ, like, because there's things that are said to us or things that people share with us. And it's like, maybe it's really dark and maybe it's really destructive and it's really heavy. But I think, you know, in terms of, we talk about shame. If shame is this belief that I am an unacceptable person, that I'm not enough, then the, 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 the anti-venom to that is radical acceptance saying you are accepted. I love you. Um, and that really begins to break down sort of the framework of saying that I am not enough when you as an individual are sitting across the, the table from saying, saying, I love you, I accept you, let's, let's figure this out. I think the other thing I, I would say to people is that so often we don't get involved because we feel like we have to fix people and we have to have answers. And I think one of the things that we just have to um, surrender in terms of people's uh, dysfunction or brokenness or struggles is that 
that we don't have to fix them. We don't have to, they actually have to do their own work. What we need to do is love them. And honestly, one of the most loving things that we can do for people is to, to like hold space with them and let them, and, and listen. Like not e even say anything. Like it's amazing. I do, you know, often I'll do hour, hour and a half sessions with people. Um, sometimes, you know, in a, in a professional setting, sometimes just in a, in a, a non-professional setting where um, I'm listening and I'm, I'm just asking a few questions. And it's funny, like I always end the meeting and I've said very few things actually within that hour or hour and a half, but they go, oh my gosh, Mike, you are so brilliant. You have like, you have helped me so much. And it's like, I really didn't say anything. All I did was give them a place for them to process something and to talk about something and a place to feel safe and to feel loved. And that to me, CJ, like if we could just as a society and as a friends and, and with our coworkers, like get good at that, man, the healing and the freedom that would come from that would be absolutely uh, outstanding. Thanks so much, Mike. Hey, check out Mike's book, People of the Second Chance on Amazon or wherever books are sold. And while you're at it, go to peopleofthesecondchance.org. There's a ton of awesome stuff that he's put together, remarkable stuff to help you break shame in your life and help others do the same. We need people like Mike Foster. We need people like you to be people of the second chance. Thanks for listening to Sounds Like a Movement. For more conversations with weirdos, pioneers, disruptors, and make-believers, visit soundslikeamovement.com or wherever you get your podcasts.